I'm Danie from Journey of a Braid, and this is Braided Conversations. Aida Salazar is an award-winning author and art activist whose writings explore issues of identity and social justice. She was born in Mexico and grew up in a family of seven children in southeast Los Angeles, where she spent many days sitting in little puddles of water on cement, believing she was in the ocean. Aida, it's a great pleasure for me to be speaking to you today. Um, I just finished a couple of hours this copy of Land of the Cranes, which was extremely unexpected. I don't know if, if you've ever felt this, but there are certain themes that sometimes are more pervasive in your life and they come out of the blue and then they start sort of braiding themselves into your life in a very particular way. That has been the case for me when it comes to the immigration situation of our native country, Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, first of all, I want to thank Miami Book Fair and Miami Book Fair Online for this opportunity to, to speak to you and also to, like, simply to amplify the voices of our community. So, my first question is, what, what's your immigration story? Well, I was born in Mexico, uh, in a pueblito que se llama Jalpa Zacatecas, and, and it's, it's like in a town that is in, up in the, in the mountainside. And I was brought over when I was nine months old. And we came with a tourist visa, and we outstayed our visa. My father and my mother came from humble backgrounds, and they wanted to fulfill their American dream. And there were four of us. And you know, we outstayed. And it, my sister was born very, like maybe three years after we arrived. And as soon as she was born, we were able to apply for residency for the whole family. And so then I spent my entire childhood undocumented. Um, and it, when I was about 12, 13 years old, we got our residency. And, you know, fast forward, I'm now a citizen. How was it like going to school? knowing that there was this huge risk always behind the door? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in some part, it wasn't very present in my school time it, because this was in the 70s and 80s. I was not really conscious of it in, in school because I was in a community, community in Southeast LA that was 90% Mexicano, Mexican mostly. And... So there was an awareness mostly when we started hearing about rates, when we, as we were provisionally in the United States in process of getting documented, we would go to Mexico. And, and when we went into the border across to Tijuana or whatever, that's when it became incredibly clear that we were living in the shadows and we were not fully a, we fully didn't belong. And, and so that was that was scary. And then, of course, also so many of my relatives were either, you know, crossed with coyotes or some of them were disappeared. You know, they, they crossed and they never were heard of from again. When I am a crane, no one can hurt me. 
Coyotes are animals that howl in the night and take your money and your soul too. Others were caught and deported time after time. All of them, you know, in different, um, you know, uh, incarnations or, or experiences of the migrant experience but but it was very real and 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 you know we were all mojados right? five to the response a three is going to handle it three you all seven the numbers my little brother is gone because we were too poor to buy him medicine he was my best friend if i could hold you one more time my boy if i could hold you I recently spoke to, to a friend of mine. She's an artist and she's doing a residency here in Miami. Her name is Arlene. She actually lives uh, in LA. You should connect mm-hmm. because her story is very special and she's part of DACA. So mm-hmm. actually her being here is a problem. Like it, it could become a problem at any point. But she was telling me that while, when growing up, she would see people braided or wearing wipiles or any of those things that they would come, like all her American friends would come back from Cancun with their wipiles and she would be so mad at them. She would be so angry because she would just feel that she couldn't go to Mexico, but they could, and they could just sort of trash to say it in a way, or at least mm-hmm. to like to mirror her feeling, mm-hmm. uh, the culture by using textiles that were meant for Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it it was really interesting because I never imagined that kind of connotation to something like just dressing yourself Mexican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for for sure, I, I I only experienced that when I went to college, and 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 it wasn't like um it wasn't in the same kind of vein because you know I went to um to a university that was all white, and for my first spring break we went to Cancun, and oh. when we got to Cancun, I couldn't believe the the horror, the the just the you know, utter like devastation that the American consumer culture was inflicting on Mexico and, and how Mexico in many ways, because of trying to survive and exploiting that same tourism was, was feeding into it. And so it was like such a bastardization of everything. Luckily I found my way to Isla Mujeres and that was like a, a little bit of a, a respite from that. They, you know, they, they call it uh, Cancuy, Cucuy, right? Um, because it's so the locals, that's what they call it. And it was just, it was very, very, very clear. And so, yeah, um, that, that definitely exists. But also I, I would say, I, my experience also was a little bit different I couldn't ever wear a wipil during my my kind of my young adulthood. I it was it was considered kind of like uh, retrasada. You know what I mean? It was no. like something mm-hmm. that that the poor did. Um, that it, and you were trying not to be, and you were trying to be sophisticated and and cultured and and fashionable in the United States in in a very Chicana way. And it wasn't until I kind of became a more politicized and found my connection and started to reclaim my ancestry that I finally kind of embraced that indigenous part of my ancestry in as much as I embraced the the mestizaje and so um, it took me a while to 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 claim a wipil in fact I'm wearing one today right I love it because it it um I, I didn't feel like I connected 
And it, it's really interesting what you're saying, because it's something that I think is also very complicated for me. I've been living in the United States for the past five years uh, before, but I, I grew up in Mexico. And then I moved and I've been living in other places where I was always the Mexican girl. But suddenly mm -hmm. when I came to the U.S., I'm the Latina. So suddenly it seems like I said goodbye to my Mexicanness and I just melted into being Latin, mm -hmm. which is beautiful because you belong to a brother group that, that is more culturally exciting because of all the different cultures in this melting pot. But at the same time, I was like, okay, but, but then who am I? Because then as a Latina, I, I, I'm no longer white. I'm Latina, but I'm white. But, <laughs> but I'm also indigenous because I'm the product of mestizaje. And it, that's, for me, one of the parts that I carry with, with, with the most uh, pride. But mm -hmm. you are just like in this limbo. <laughs> and for mm -hmm. you growing up here, I imagine it's even harder. Because then what, what group do you belong to? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, when I grew up, I was called a pocha, right? I identified as Mexican as a young, as a young girl. But when we were able to go to Mexico... I was considered bocha. I didn't speak my, my Spanish wasn't perfect. The accent was a little bit off. Um, I, I never uh, studied Spanish because bilingual education at the time was non-existent in the United States. And, and it, again, it wasn't until I got to college and I became politicized that I embraced the Chicana identity. And I knew about the movement for social justice from the Mexican American community that embraced this concept of, Chicanisma, Chicanismo, and um, and and I've embraced that since then. But I think identity is kind of like a is is a shifting thing, right? And and it kind of blooms and flowers with you as you grow, as you expand, in in consciousness and in lived experience, right? So. Um, my my Chicana identity is forever will be present. However, as times change, as I, I, I mature, I, I'm okay with being Latina. And so I have, a, I have a friend who got me this shirt. She got us a, a shirt that says, Pocha y Chicana y Latina y Chingona, right? Like, that's all <laughs> Any questions? Yeah, exactly. So it all is, is part of, you know, the multiplicity of identities is, is inherent within all that we are, right? Absolutely. It becomes a braid, I'm telling you. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> now, going back to your book, mm. the story of this little girl is so touching in so many levels, especially because you hear it from her perspective. Um, and you, you are sort of, you, you lose yourself in this world of dreams and of papi and of mommy and of feeling safe around your parents. And yet, all of a sudden, it's this little girl that gets exposed to this horrible reality of what life has, uh, has for her, which is nothing like the world that her parents have told her about. Mm -hmm. So it's not an autobiographical work at all. It's more inspired on the situation that children are currently living. Is that right? Um, actually, I wrote it before the zero tolerance policy. Um, in... During the Obama administration, that is when many of these prisons for children who were coming to the United States border unaccompanied, um, that's when they were built um, to house these children. At that time, the Obama administration felt like it was a necessary thing to imprison, incarcerate these children. 
And that's when they were built. So, you know, we have been experiencing that in the United States for quite a while. People who were coming to the border were, were getting put in these prisons. And so I wrote this story before the zero tolerance policy was really enacted. In fact, the, the story was written and sold in March of 2018 during a time when the Trump administration was retaliating against sanctuary cities. And people who were undocumented were terrified. My community were, was just living in fear. In Northern California, where I live, the mayor had actually said that ICE was going to raid the very next day and, and people hid and, you know, incredibly scared. And despite that warning, 300 people were rounded up all across the Bay Area. And so this is the climate in which I wrote this, this story, um, thinking very deeply about a condition that I knew existed in the United States, children in a detention center, children in detention centers. And so to my horror, of course, when June of 2018 came and the zero tolerance policy began to be enacted in full force, we, um, it, it was just horrific. I could not believe that that it had that the kind of the level of barbarity and and human rights abuses had reached that um, intensity. But it it was there before. And you touch upon all. I think there are so many misconceptions about the reason why people come to this country. And you touch upon them, like the most important being uh, the the narcotraficantes like the, mm -hmm. the narco world. So mm -hmm. could you list some of these things that, that you think that people sometimes think is the reason for, for Latin Americans to come to the country and they're act it's actually quite a different reality? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the United States has played a big role in, in creating conditions, unbearable conditions in countries because of the neoliberal policies and imperialistic policies that they've enacted all across mm -hmm. Latin America. And, and, and it created destabilized governments and have not allowed governments to, um, to grow in healthy and uh, ways because they've, you know, um, meddled in elections, have been responsible for assassinating political leaders, etc., etc. And so much of Latin America is destabilized and is struggling. And, and because of that, people flee. And if you, if, if you think about migration of any species, what happens, right? Why do people migrate? Is because they are trying to survive because the conditions in, under which they live no longer work. And, and so they travel and that's how we populated the whole globe. Right. Um, and so, Uh, you know, people come because the conditions are unbearable in their homes. There is, of course, a fraction of people who come because of the American dream, because the conditions are better here. And so it's a mix. It's a mix. But I think, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the 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 terrible cycle that the United States has created in, in, per, in, in creating conditions for people to have to leave their homes. And I also love the references that you make to Aztlán and how you, you go back in time to, to that indigenous aspect, which, I mean, this was 
uh, our land and <laughs> so much of it used to be part of our land and and that sense of just humans or countries claiming ownership is mm-hmm. it's so bizarre and i think that it's becoming harder and harder when borders sort of became really really thin and now again frontiers are are, are becoming stronger so mm-hmm. it's so complicated it is it is but but it, it is and it isn't you know in some ways um I really drew upon again the Chicano movement during the 60s that that concept of Aslan was kind of rescued and and many uh, folks in the Chicano movement wanted to to validate their existence and it was important and they knew that this place Aslan it was it's mythological you know some uh, scientists say or not scientists but, but but archaeologists say that it actually is in Utah but but in the southwest you know people were using it as as that and it became a philosophical place a place where your consciousness was liberated that you you would say I live in Aslan I do not live in California but but furthermore, I mean that. So I drew on that, on the power of that myth, um, to to validate the existence of people migrating or the the act of people migrating. And then you you, you have all these references also to f- flying. So it, I I like that mix of of reality and fiction in between because then she's always talking about the wings and the birds and the feathers and it's living through this. Um, Hi, how we always talk about this, and I forgot the word the spirit animal that we. Well, you know that that word is is uh, that concept mm-hmm. is something that is very sacred to Native Americans, and I have you know um, I have a lot of respect for not using it because because I can't claim it, especially in in the United States, right? Um, I really was was kind of drawing on a little girl's misbelief, right? What she believes in and 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 a little bit of kind of magical realism. This this concept of having wings but not really having wings, right? And in her her in her in her mind they are real. They're absolutely real. And and it's only us being in a in the real world who say, "Oh no, they're not real." And so um so I really, um, it, it's more, it's more than than that being attached to one particular animal, but more kind of like being um, believing that she is actually a crane, and that also giving her hope mm-hmm. when things. You you talk about the ICE family plan and how everyone in her community had this. What does an ICE uh, family plan look like? Well, so um, many of the uh, immigrant rights organizations have put out these sorts of guides, right? If you, um, you know, for families to kind of uh, protect themselves. So you would in, in your packet, you put as much, as much documentation as you can if you are in legal proceedings to file for asylum or, you know, whatever, um, f- pictures of your family, any kind of proof, um, uh, you know, access to your bank records or all of these things that kind of would prove that you are living and working and, and in the United States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
so so the, it it varies it varies um and and they call it cajita de tesoros a little treasure box because ah, that's the actual name uh, no. that they give that they give uh, in general not it's not only in your book oh is that right i didn't know that no, I, I don't I don't think so. I think that's okay. what she, her family called it's it. It's just for her. Okay. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was becoming yeah. even more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. And then there is this moment when um, she's with her mother and uh, there's this girl that is being kind of mean and still her mom gives her like her cover, uh, like mm-hmm. to help her. And uh, she looks at her mom and she's like, but, but why did you do that? And her mom tells her, when did we start doing what the heart thinks is right? And they say this right after all this violence is uh, committed towards them. Mm-hmm. So how would you answer this question in our political situation right now? When did we start doing what the heart thinks is right. Um, is it? Is it? When did we stop doing? Sorry. When? when yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I was a little. <laughs> when did we yeah. stop doing what the heart thinks is right? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, well, um, I think that that we have a situation in our political landscape right now that has bombarded people left and right. I think one of the successes, if I can call it that, of the Trump administration has been to be relentless about how punitive, how inhumane, how deadly they have been against its very own citizens and against people who are seeking asylum, which is an absolute lawful act. And so I think that I believe in the benevolence of humanity in in people's ability to do the right thing i really do and it's something that was was taught to me by my parents um and in my community of activists that i um, surround myself with that we we fight and we we stand up for what is right and so i i believe that enough of us out there um will will kind of agree with this, agree with this doing the right thing because it's the right thing, because we are all in this together. Um, the the land is telling us that we're in it together. The, you know, the biology. movement, the biology, I mean, this is all, you know, uh, to use your metaphor, we're all braided together, right? And so, um, so you know, my mom always uh, taught me to be in service to people. And, and, and that, that, that was the right thing to do. And I'm hoping that through the book to, to teach children that, that they have the power to do the right thing, that they have agency, just like Betita, to, to write a poem, to raise their voice, to shut down anything that gets in the way of, of doing the right thing. And so um, it's, it's my hope. It's my hope that, that that's what the book will do. And I think it's great also. It's the first time that I see this uh, kind of resource also for, for a younger audience to have all these feelings accessible and with, with the right words. And it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was very intentional about that because I knew I was writing for nine-year-olds. But, but I also knew that nine-year-olds were experiencing this. 
right? That's and what so, they, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to, um, and actually, I have to say that after the zero tolerance policy um, was enacted, a lot of journalism came out that actually let us hear firsthand the ch- from the children, their children that were being interviewed. And some of their voices and some of their stories, I was able to fold into the, the, the narrative afterwards. There's one line that I, I saw actually an interview of a man who said that he was carrying his, his little girl and they were about to be separated. And she banged on his chest and said, you told me that you would bring me to the place where princesses are born, and crying. And so that, I couldn't not include that in this, in this, in this, in this, in this story because, because it said so much, right? It said so much about what a father has to, a parent has to tell a child as they're traveling, you know, the hundreds of miles to, you know, across terrible conditions to get to a place um, of, of hope and freedom and, and the dream, right? Papi, you told me you would bring me to the place where princesses are born. I dream of a day when all migrants are free and I am too. And I think there are very few things that hurt as much as breaking the dreams of your child. And that, that's one of the feelings that everyone, regardless of how privileged or not they are, has mm-hmm. felt. And I think it's really important to touch upon those things that everyone knows how it feels in the slightest level. Obviously, this is the deepest it can ever go. Mm-hmm. But it's a great mm-hmm. way to unite Uh, us emotionally for everyone, even someone that was born in this country and and might even feel that, you know, we shouldn't be here in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I I go back, I go back to the, the right of people to migrate, and that, that the resources and the, the energy that we've spent in trying to criminalize that process of migration has, it it doesn't have to be like that. Just like these calls to defund the police. I mean, it seems like a radical act, but, but really, you know, why not, you know, shift our lens and use a compassionate policy to help people to heal um, society. Yes. I mean, like it just makes no, absolute no sense. Um, so it's the hope, it's the hope for sure. Do you think we'll get there? Do you think, because, you know, sometimes I wonder, like all these kids that end up going back to Mexico, um, Mm. what is left inside their hearts, inside their minds, inside, like how, how can they even confront the world after this? You know, like where is all that hate going to go? Because obviously hate will just lead into more hate. But how how is all that energy going to be channeled to a certain degree to make things better instead mm-hmm. of just turn, like also become part of a part of the Carter or, you know, like grow into the guerrilla, guerrilla or mm-hmm. whatever it is. It's, mm-hmm. 
I don't yeah. know if, if, if this process has been followed through. I I don't think so. No. I mean, right now, my hope is that the administration is going to change and that enough people know the effects of um, the effects and the devastation that this has had on so many people. There are organizations like Al Otro Lado, Raices Texas, who are actually trying to reunite families who have been separated and they're going into Mexico and Central America trying to connect people who've been deported and separated. So there is there is work, but they need so much more support. And I would, you know, in a, in, in a perfect world, you know, things would change immediately right as soon as the new government comes in but I know that it's not and I think that there has to be maybe you know like in South Africa a truth and reconciliation um, committee uh, body that will specifically um, work on trying to repair the harm and that would uh, support the work that Al Otro Lado and Raices are doing already to to heal some of this I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what what this is going to do to to children. I, you know, I I read what what um, scientists and doctors are saying that this does irreparable harm to their brains and to their development and their psyches. Um, and you know, I think that we have to think about that as we, you know, find. Um, you know, with the new government, I'm going to say positively with the new government, how how this is going to be repaired and healed. Absolutely. And I, I, I really hope uh, there's hope. There's hope. And but I think it's also, you know, like there are so many different realities in the United States. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's incredible to see, you know, the contrast, I think, between Florida and then California. And uh, it's a totally different view. I mean, we, we're one of those states that will probably determine this election. And this morning I was uh, speaking to, to my doctor. I went for the flu shot and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, he was telling me, yes, no, but I, I'm definitely not going to vote. And I'm like, what do you mean you're not going to vote? And he's like, yeah, my family's Republican, but I don't want to vote for Trump because I don't like him. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. He's like, but I don't like Biden either. So I'm just not going to vote. <laughs> I'm like, Two minutes before, he was telling me how much he cared for the bees that were dying in his garden. Because every time airplanes uh, land, they drop all the gas. And so every morning, he has like 100 bees to clear because there seems to be like this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you see that. So I think it's so contradictory the way we all operate and mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. how our mind is molded according to our family history and the country that we come from mm -hmm. and so. privilege. I think, yeah. you know, the, 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 that man has the privilege not to vote. He has such little at stake, but he's Cuban, you know, like I, and I understand. <laughs> yes. I know. That's so deep, <laughs> so deep. And by the way, you need to look at the work of uh, this incredible artist. She's called Aurora Molina. She's Cuban, mm -hmm. Cuban mm -hmm. descent. Uh -huh. Her parents are totally against what's happening with, um, with, with the children, but not in the right way. Like they think that, you know, get them all out of here. When her grandparents arrived here through the Peter Pan project. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. and she's doing this beautiful project of stitching faces of kids from people all over the world. They send a stitched face of this child mm -hmm. and all the funds are going to, to Americans for Immigrant Justice, which is one of those great organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we are, I think, 
riddled, especially the the Latinx community is riddled with contradictions uh, because of of what colonization did. And and I think that we um, we tend out of survival, out of of trying of self preservation to align with systems of power that um, that will benefit us versus um, kind of thinking about the greater good. Um, I've seen this in in my own community. I, I see it in my own family, right? They're they're like, oh, you know, they're not they're, why don't they come here legally? My own family, whose grandparents and 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 mothers or fathers were uh, undocumented, it it it's um it's what this this many theorists have said is the colonized mind, right? They've kind of subjected the uh, of of they've surrendered to the colonized mind. They put their head down. It's that's exactly what you can see in my pictures behind, and it's exactly that theme. That's what I'm trying to to show mm-hmm. because I think that it's it's one of those that it's really also hard to take away sometimes the layers of what colonization brings upon you. It's it's mm-hmm. true and it's mm-hmm. it's so hard to understand. But yeah. um, but I I, I love uh, this project Land of the Cranes because I think it's it's such a beautiful way to to open the conversation and uh, hopefully it's picked up by by schools all over the country to also make it more real for children. And I love mm-hmm. that she's braided as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's there, and there's a scene in where they're braiding, she's yes. braiding her. When she has the piojos. The piojos. The <laughs> when she has the piojos all over her and she wants to get rid of them. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much, Aida, for your time. Um, and I, I, I mean, keep doing what you're doing because it's, I think it's having a very powerful effect in the community. Special thanks to Miami Book Fair Online for making this interview possible. Land of the Cranes by Aida Salazar is published by Scholastic. Music production and audio editing by Nori Ehrenfeld.